My name is Anthony Desiato. For more than a decade, I worked, shopped, and hung out at a New York comic book store called Alternate Realities. Today, my comic shop is history, but there's a whole world of stores out there. This season, on My Comic Shop History, I have been traveling to stores around the country, town to town, shop to shop, and speaking to the men and women behind the counter. It's all leading to a new documentary film called My Comic Shop Country. The Kickstarter campaign launches in September. Be part of the journey. This episode features Zap Comics in Wayne, New Jersey, and is part one of our two-part New Jersey episode. Enjoy. Welcome to My Comic Shop History. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. This episode, my journey to comic book stores across America, brings me to Zap Comics in Wayne, New Jersey. I am here with one of the store's owners, Ben Lichtenstein. Ben, welcome to the show. Hi, Anthony. Thank you for having me. Or, or am I having you, or are you having me? Yeah, we are in your store. Okay. Uh, bright and early on a Sunday morning. So previously, I know you listened to the Packrat Comics episode mm-hmm. earlier in the season. Previously, they were the record holder for earliest recording of my comic shop history. We met at 9 a.m., you have now usurped their spot. You are the earliest recording, 8 a.m. I'm very honored, and I pride myself on uh, getting an early start. In fact, I'm one of those people who gets up really early, gets an early, wants to get a jump on the day and a jump on uh, on life. And I find I'm, I'm the most productive. The f- those first few hours of the day, like from like 6 to like 9, are my most productive. So that's, that's how I live my life. <laughs> well, it's a great way to be. I know when we were talking about this, I said, it, you know, it is always my preference to do this before or after store hours. So I appreciate you, you know, accommodating that. And I'm glad it wasn't too much of an imposition since you're an early riser anyway. No, I'm actually glad we could do it when the store is closed because I, I would probably want you to see, you know, some action when we open up and see what's going on. But I think it would have, uh, I think it's better this way, quieter. It's funny though. Normally, on a day-to-day basis, it is a struggle for me to get up, even at 8.30. I, we live hmm. across the street from where we work, so we don't have, well, we have no work? commute. We work what? at Pace Law School in White Plains, New York. Okay, yeah, I've heard of that. Sure. My wife and I both work there. And, again, most days it's a struggle to get up, even at 8.30, to get to be there for 9 o'clock. But today, alarm went off at 6, and I was I was up and at him, ready to go, because I was excited to do this. You were saying, I'm going to Zap Comics, I'm... I'm motivated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very cool. So, yeah, no, I'm really excited to be here. I want to congratulate you on the, the store was recently nominated for an Eisner, the Spirit yes. of Retailing Award. Thank you. Thank you. That was uh, that was something we've been meaning to uh, to try to go after. And, you know, this was the first year we applied. And I know I listened to Packrat, and they applied, what, four years? Was it four times? Uh, four or five times? Yeah. And it's definitely, you know, having a store in the suburbs... We don't have quite the breadth of independence that some stores do, and I think that's one thing that might hold us back a little bit. But we're we're going to keep reapplying, and we we're going to try to win it. Yeah, we want to win. So well, lots we'll of see. luck to you. Thank you. I mean, this is my first time at the store, and I mean, I'm just blown away by just what you have here. I mean, it's just meticulous and pristine. Everything is in its place. It's so organized. Cool. It's really a beautiful store. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. We definitely work very hard. And that, that's something a lot of, I think a lot of whether the consumers or just maybe new comic stores don't realize how much work goes into this. And, and you know, from, you know, being uh, over at Steve's, well, part of, you worked there part-time, right? That was... Yeah. Okay. So, so you know how much work can go into it. And, you know, when it's not maintained, things can 
fall apart quickly and deteriorate quickly. You know, you're dealing with a wave of stuff every day coming in. So thanks. Yeah, yeah. We definitely work very hard. My team is very good at, and I'm I'm pretty picky too. I I get it. I get annoyed when stuff starts getting out out of control. Yeah, you know that's something I, I want to touch on. You know, we can get into that, but I do know firsthand how things can pile up easily. And you know, this is the first time you and I have met in person. But I, you know, I heard your name a lot. You came up a lot in oh, our I did. discussions. Oh. Well, <laughs> let's hope my my ears aren't going to be burning too much. No, it was it was all good stuff because you know we would always talk about again alternate realities. And for listeners who followed the first season of the show, you know what we're talking about. Alternate realities was overflowing with with merchandise with with I mean back issues in particular, mm-hmm. um, and just overstock new books, which quickly then became back issues. And, you know, I know at one point, and we can get into this, but I know at one point you did buy some, some overstock from Steve. Yes, we always, we kind I of, was there. <laughs> yeah, we kind of always wanted to, uh, for that to happen again, so that we would just kind of have some more space and, and we could kind of just kind of clear house and, and get things more in order. So, so you came up a lot. You are a, a well-known and, and beloved figure within the alternate realities community. <laughs> Well, listen, the, the words well-known makes me nervous, but the, you said beloved, so I'll take that, and uh, thanks. I don't know if you know Rich Roney by name, but he's... Not by name, no. He's Steve Odo's best friend, and he's an alternate reality's mainstay, and when I told him what the plan was for this season of the podcast, that I was going to be going to other stores, mm-hmm. no joke, I cannot tell you how many times he was like, you got to go to Zap, you got to talk to Ben. Well... Very interesting. That's. Uh, I'm sure if I see him in person, I'll recognize him instantly. I, I don't know Rich, but uh, thank you, Rich. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sure if you saw him, you you and he he's been in the in the store before as well. But uh, no, that was uh, he was singing your praises, and he was uh, oh, very, very adamant nice. that I have you on the show. <laughs> yeah, we definitely try. My one of the, my biggest uh, unfor- my well, not a, I don't know if I just call it a complaint, but but I wish I had about an extra five feet in width there because we are pretty tight here. I wish I had. You know, we have um, almost 1,200 square feet, and I wish I had about 1,600. I would make my life a lot easier because it gets tight, especially uh, whether it's free comic book day or we do our once a year, we do an annual sale or, or we, we do our uh, artist events here. It gets tight. That's my one complaint with the store. But besides that, I think having a gigantic store, just to go on a tangent a little bit, Sometimes when you have a huge store, it looks impressive and it's more fun to shop in, but a lot of the space, I believe, is wasted because uh, you have all these areas which look great but are not necessarily getting you any more sales. So um, I would like to have another few feet of width. Wouldn't it be so tight? You know, some of our larger uh, uh, customers come in and it gets tight sometimes. But um, Yeah, I'm sure on a Wednesday in particular, right? It could exactly. Fill up. On Wednesdays, yeah, Wednesdays and sometimes Saturdays. You know, we're fairly busy Saturdays and that's my, uh, but you know what? I'm not moving from here. I've been here too long. I'm established. I'm, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, so how long have you been at this location? This location, 23 years, because we moved into Wayne in 93, and after one year at another location in Wayne, which was, well, well, to bring up, you know, size, it, we used to call it the bowling alley. It was nine feet wide, and it was, um, I think, 60, no, 70 feet deep. So after a year, I'd had enough of it, and we moved over here, and I'm, I'm very happy with this location. It worked out great. Um, so yeah, from we moved here in June of 94. You know, one of my goals with this season, and I've talked about it previously, is that you know, I want to present a cross-section of stores. So I want to find stores that are either doing something that's different than other stores or doing the same thing but doing it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And aside from Rich's <laughs> recommendation, you know, one of the main reasons I wanted to spotlight Zap is the 
back issue selection and your collection buying, which mm-hmm. seems to be distinct among among stores, at least from what I've come across. Uh, so I, you know, I definitely do want to get into that. But but before we do, it's a tradition when I bring on a new guest. The show is called My Comic Shop History, so I always like to get a sense of the guest's comic shop history. So sure. I mean, where did this journey start for you? How did you get into comics? Well, I, I was first exposed to comic books. I was uh, I went to work with my father. I was seven years old, and I. I behaved myself, which was unusual, but I behaved myself. So after work, my father said, okay, I'll, I'll get you comic books. And I'd never heard of comic books. And I said, what is this? And we went to a tobacco store, like a typical, like it was called Bernie's Smoke Shop. And um, I still remember that smell, it's magical. You know, the tobacco smell, of pipe tobacco. <laughs> and I bought two Superman comic books. I don't remember the numbers, there were three maybe 317 or so. I used to remember them. My, my brain is not what it was. I'm in my 40s now. And I bought these two comic books. One concerned Lana Lang dyeing her hair black to trick Superman into dating her. And um, she was, uh, I remember it was raining and uh, Titano, the super ape, got involved with his kryptonite. I think he had kryptonite rays out of his eyes, right, Titano? I think he does. And the other one was a, a villain named Blackstone. We had lame, horrible. And, and these were fairly horrible comics. They were 1970s Supermans. But I was instantly hooked. And the next week, I said, well, I have to get more of these. And then I got a, the Prince and the Pauper Marvel Classics comics and then a Hulk annual. Oh, no, Amazing Spider-Man annual with the Hulk. And I was hooked instantly. So I read everything I get my hands on. I would ride my bike down to the candy store. And then after about a year or so... I started losing interest. I don't know what happened. Oh, you know what? I got into fishing. Oh, okay. (laughs) So what I did was, which was really intelligent, I brought all of my comic books. I had maybe a couple hundred, and I brought them to a flea market, and I sold them for $14. I remember that number. That was a lot of money. This is 1978. True. All right, 79. And I I bought fishing lures. And I never caught a fish in a fishing lure. I, I tried and didn't work. And then I took a break from comic books for a few years, and then I went to camp um, in Maine. I was 12, and I was exposed to comic books again, and it was like magical, and I got hooked big time. And then I went from buying new books, and I was just buying everything on the stands, you know, and just working, getting every cent I could to buy comics. And then I started buying and selling collections. Even at a young age, I was 14 or 15. This is pre-internet. There was no such thing as the internet. So I would scour the newspaper ads, and there was a magazine called Want Ad Press, which you may have never heard of at your age. Want Ad Press in the 80s, 70s, and 80s was this uh, weekly buying and selling thing. You could buy anything, antiques, cars. It was in this area. I don't know if they were nationwide. So I would scour the ads for comic books, and I would call people up, and I was you know, 14 or 15. I'd have to get my mother to drive me, and I would buy their old comics. And I just grew it from there. And then... Um, I started doing comic shows. I definitely learned a lot about, um, on a, a, a rudimentary level, just buying and selling things. And you don't want to sell things too cheap because you're leaving too much money on the table and then you can't restock. But you don't want to have them sitting too long. I never wanted things to sit too long. It, it would make me antsy, um, which is just my philosophy. So I would do the, uh, in the 80s, there was these Fred Greenberg comic shows. And um, I would also go into the city to the creation comic book shows. They were a lot of fun. Just it was when I look back on that, it was magical. I, I got a million stories about that. So I, I learned how to buy and sell by doing these comic book shows. 
And um, I also started to advertise in Comics Buyer's Guide. I don't know if you've heard of Comics Buyer's yeah, Guide. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so if the reader or if the listeners don't know what uh, Comics Buyer's Guide, we used to say CBG, that was a weekly fan newspaper with tons of classified ads, columns, uh, articles about comics, and I would look forward to my Comics Buyer's Guide. And, you know, every, you know, I think, I don't know, when Monday or Tuesday, it would come in the mail, and I would, so I started running ads in there. And people would be calling my house, and I'd just get random handwritten letters in the mail, sometimes with cash, sometimes with money orders. If they sent a check, it was always a problem, because I don't think I had a checking account at that time. It was, I had to get my mother to sign it. It was, but I, I was, really learned quite a bit about that, and I was always pretty good about cultivating, you know, uh, new sources for comic books, and I was generally always, I really do my best to be as straightforward as possible. Obviously, we, we all want to get our best price we can. We want to get that score, but I was always really straight with people. Um, I, I know a lot of guys in the business, they really get off on that, really, I don't want to say sticking it to them, but, you know, really scoring, like finding that million dollar comic and ripping them off and I just was always I'm a terrible liar so I just say well listen here's what I can do and uh, you know I try and be very competitive so anyway I learned I was doing comic shows CBG again this is before the internet and then I went away to college I went to Rutgers I opened up with a college buddy of mine we opened up in a uh, part-time comic book shop in one of those enclosed flea market buildings that are open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday? Sure. Okay. So we opened up in uh, 89, and I opened up a diamond account. Well, hold on. Back, see, I'm a, a Heroes World account, excuse me. That was the main distributor, the right. Heroes World. Um, and every Thursday, I would drive my ratty. I had this terrible old Oldsmobile, like a 19... I don't know, 80 Oldsmobile, and I would drive to Heroes World and pick up the comics and then break them down. And I learned a lot about buying in new books and how it feels to get stuck with product and being careful. So I did that. Then I graduated from Rutgers with a degree in English in 91, which I wasn't going to be a teacher. Um, I think I applied for some proofreading jobs, which would have been basically hell. And um, I had... Between all my different experiences buying and selling with CBG and the comic shows and that part-time shop, I felt I could probably do this as a store. And I kind of said, well, I don't want to really work as a proofreader. And um, I always had, like, visions in the back of my mind. I want, oh, well, I should also say I always wanted to draw comic books, as most kids do. So I actually went to art school. My first college experience, I went to University of Arts in Philadelphia, and then I kind of had one of those life epiphanies. And I said, well... I was the best kid in Fairlawn, New Jersey, you know, but now I'm like really competing against super talented people and they're really dedicated and I'm not that dedicated and I don't want to struggle. So I transferred to Rutgers. But anyway, um, I realized that uh, I always was interested in owning my own business. My family, uh, you know, uh, was encouraged that my grandfather did and other members of my family. That That, that was something that was pretty... Uh, standard in my family, my extended family. Any business classes at undergrad or the business <laughs> experience was really through those other endeavors? Yeah, what what I will say, if I could go back in time, I would have probably majored in business, maybe with a minor in English, because I do, I, I'm a big reader and I enjoy writing. But the funny thing is, uh, I ne never took a single business class, never, I'm completely self-taught. 
and uh, which is I'm not recommending that actually. I probably would have gone farther or and faster if I had more, you know, more of a discipline background, more of an accounting background. You know, you're not alone. I think every retailer I've spoken to so far, none of them have had a business background per se. I've noticed. <laughs> it's actually, and what I what what I will find interesting is. And it's not just this business, it's a lot of types of business. The guys who are successful are not necessarily have the book smarts. They have just good uh, street smarts or just just a good sense for spotting opportunities. Yeah, good instincts. Instincts. Yeah, instincts are, are huge. So, yeah, so I graduated from Rutgers with a degree in English, and I think I had a minor in biology, which was weird, but I'm, I'm also interested in that. Um, so we opened up... Um, with a buddy of mine from college, and he actually stepped back. After a year, we realized we couldn't work together, and he stepped back from the business. But we opened up together the store in Sayreville in 93, and then I, uh, we opened up uh, almost a month later our other store in Wayne. When you started buying and selling collections as a teenager, mm-hmm. was it that you were looking to own books as a fan and then you were selling what you didn't want or was this envisioned as a business even from that early age okay that's a great question see well you're you're a great interviewer okay oh, um, i appreciate that what i was uh when i started buying those collections part of it was um it was actually twofold one is i wanted to increase my collection and one of the best ways, but again, it's a lot of work and it's difficult and risky, but one of the best ways, if you want to build a good collection, you want to be buying other people's collections, keeping what you want, selling the others, and hopefully, if you're buying right, recouping the cost of the collection, right? That makes sense. And, and that also brings your cost basis down on your collection way lower. Then you have a bigger budget for more books. So what I was doing at that time when I was buying collections as the, at the age of about 14 when I really started scouring those ads, I was 14 or 15. Um, I was buying them too for my collection. I would keep what I wanted. I was a big Silver Age fan, big Jack Kirby guy. Love, loved uh, Silver Age Marvels. Didn't like Silver Age DCs very much, aside from a few. Like I, I like Batman, but I was more of a Marvel guy. And I also got into EC comics, you know, the uh, horror stuff. Sure. I'm a big EC guy. In fact, that's one. That's what I. I've never sold my ECs or some of my silver uh, marbles. I, everything else I've owned, I sold off when I started the business. So um, that was the, it, it was a two-pronged plan, one to increase my collection, and the other, absolutely, in the back of my mind, I was like, wow, this will be really cool. I'm going to, you know, uh, have a business buying and selling. I thought it was really neat to own my own business. And then the comic shop side of it, as a as a fan and, and a customer. I know you got those first books at the tobacco shop. What was the first like bona fide comic shop that you went to? Okay, great. Uh, great question. Um, Don't give me too much credit. The show's called My Comic Shop History. That one's a, <laughs> that one's a freebie. Yeah, well, I still <laughs> think, it, think it's a good question. But uh, I, I'll tell you how, um, when I was growing up in North Jersey, I grew up in Fairlawn, New Jersey, in Bergen County. Now, there was a shop in one of the first comic shops. It was in the uh, Bergen Mall in Paramus, New Jersey. And it was called Collector's Comic Shop. I still am friendly with the owner. His name's Frank. I can't pronounce his last name. I see him at the local comic shows to this day, and we, and we chat. And that was that store was one of my favorites. The other one, which was uh, I could ride my bike, there was in Ridgewood, New Jersey, called Dollars and Cents. And Cents was spelled like common sense, but not okay. Gotcha. Now that guy I, was uh, has been in here this year. His name's Greg. 
um, and we chat about the old days, and he actually tries to sell me comics, and I, I think I bought a collection from him recently. But I would ride my bike to Dollars and Cents. Now, they were two completely different stores. The one in the mall was generally better organized, uh, but he, he had a great back issue selection. It was small, but, and then I would get my, so I'd get my new books there, and he, he always had a decent back issue selection, and he was pretty organized. He had a nice store, small, but very nice. Dollars and Cents was more that old school, messy, but fun, and he had no air conditioning. Like, you would go there in the summer. I, I remember a few times almost fainting in there. It was in the summertime, and I'm digging through comics in a dusty comic store. The AC at Alternate Realities was always a little bit spotty, so there were definitely some summers where where it wasn't working. I remember one time I was wearing a, a hat, a baseball cap, and I was organizing back issues, and the AC wasn't working. I almost passed out. It was so <laughs> hot. <laughs> I can imagine. So that was uh, that was my two local shops that I and I went to them very often. And they were both, in their own way, very enjoyable. I, I have very fond memories of going to those stores. I loved it. And then, well, I guess one other thing that I'm curious about, you were buying and selling these collections at such a young age. What were the reactions of the people you were dealing with? I mean, did you ever feel like they were like, oh, like who's this kid? Or was that not something you really experienced? Well, I think about it now. When I would show up at someone's house, in general, I, I didn't really pick up on it if they were thinking that I they didn't I wasn't spoken to in like a derisive fashion or a demeaning That's way. Great. So in general, I learned a lot about people. You could kind of get a feel for what people were just really uncooperative, and which ones were uh, going to be a problem. I learned how to deal with people, but then again, I'm still learning. I'm I am far from fully evolved. Trust me. So, um, well, you know, at, at the age of fourteen, you see, it's I think it's a little different now. Um, in my era, and, and again, not to sound like an old man, when I went to school, I walked uphill both ways. I'm not trying not to say like that, but I think kids generally these days are not as maybe out there and independent and, and assertive as they were in the 80s. Like in the 80s, it was fairly much, I would be out there earning money, you know, shoveling snow and like wheeling and dealing and, you know, trying to make money. So I generally didn't get much of a much of a problem as a kid at least that I picked up on it maybe I was just in denial and they were thinking I was who's this snot-nosed kid well I mean it's very entrepreneurial of you you remind me in in hearing this reminds me of Brandon Montclair a comic book creator and one of the former owners of alternate realities I know Brandon yeah and I mean as a young kid he was doing shows as well and then he bought into alternate realities I think right out of high school which when I learned that in the first season of the show it was uh surprising to me but you know it makes sense I think some of it you just nat- you know, it either naturally comes to you or doesn't. I think I think to me uh, part of it was like I said I have a background. My family, there was several people in my family who, who their whole lives they own their own businesses. So it, it wasn't something intimidating or wasn't something strange. That was just the way it was. You either got highly educated or you owned a business. Was the recommended career path. Did you seek advice from those family members, or did they thrust it upon you, or was it more just kind of learning through observation? I think I, it was just learning, you know, through osmosis. And, there, um, I, you know, my grandfather, who was a big inspiration, he had, before I even, he, I know he would have been very interested in me, but he actually died when I was uh, 12 or 13. But I spent a lot of time with him growing up. He was in our same town. We were at their house all the time. So I would, and he would bring me to work. He had this, a fairly large business in Patterson, New Jersey, and he would bring me to work there, and I would just observe. I, I, I really feel the best way to learn is observing. And, and you soak it in. 
One thing I always did from the beginning, um, I tried to carry a pretty diverse line of stuff. My first love's comic books. That's what I love. That's my specialty, and that's what I truly love. But I also recognized to be diversified, and that's actually what saved me, I think. Uh, even when we first opened up that first store in Sayreville, that I made a point of that because I was worried even then about being too reliant on comic books only because even though I love them, I recognize that the market could change. You know, when 9-11 hit, business got real bad, of course. Uh, but the comic market turned around then. And I can distinctly remember when the comic market turned. I don't know if Ultimate Spider-Man, when did, is that 98? I think that was 2000, no, 2000 or 2001. Okay, yeah. it was that, yeah, I, I lose track. Actually, I, I want to say 2001. Originally, it was going to be called Ground Zero Comics, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, interesting. Right? Does that ring, ring any bells? Because I think that no, was the original, I don't remember that. I'd have to double check, but I feel like that was the original name, and then obviously they quickly pivoted. Uh, after. So I want to say 2001. And Interesting. Okay. So I remember when Ultimate Spider-Man 1 came out, it was real slick. It looked good. And, you know, Marvel needed a shakeup. You know, sales were bad. And that was when things turned around. You know, things really, you know, as far as new comics, things started getting, got a lot better. And uh, we had a few good years. There were new books. But anyway, the, the last few years have been my best years in business, you know, starting about when New 52 came out in 2011, that's when things started to rocket for us, really, you know, thank God. And I, uh, it's been just excellent, thank God. Now, the it's you and Corey Brown, you were the two owners, is that correct? Okay, yeah, I'll tell you how that, um, Corey I met in, uh, I tell him this is his Fred Durst era, um, I, I don't know if you know the band Limp Bizkit. Sure, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, that's that's like kind of your era, right? Limp I was never really into them, but I, I mean, I, I certainly know. You know, them. okay. Yeah. Uh, he was very quiet. This kid would come in with his hat turned backwards, look just like Fred Durst. And I always thought to myself, wow, this kid looks like Fred. And I'd say, is this Fred Durst? And I, But I, it wasn't. And he would come in and just quietly hang around in the store. And, you know, he would shop with me. And, you know, he started, and he was from New York. He was actually, uh, Corey was, is from Massachusetts. He moved to uh, Nyack to work. Uh, he worked at Toys R Us. He was like a manager there. But he would come down to me, you know, to shop at our store. And I got to know him well. You know, one thing led to another, and he started to work for me part-time. And then I hired him full-time. And, you know, and he's, um, he's a little older. He's 40 now. So at some point, you know, he wanted to have a real career. So he didn't only want to work part-time at the comic shop, but, you know, he brought a lot of value to the company. And I had to make a decision, well, I need someone like Corey, because Corey's strengths are almost exactly uh, complement mine. Um, and he's much, he's great with all the social media and Twitter and, and the, the Zap. Uh, all the, the videos. YouTube yep. videos, yeah. And Corey also is better with people than I am. Corey just is more calm. I, I can really... I really work very hard. If, if someone's coming to my store to spend money, I'm going to be very polite to them and treat them well. But at the same time, at my age, I'm starting to lose some, some of my patience. And I really enjoy buying old comics, being in, my, in the back room there, listening to a podcast, like, you know, the comic history one. I've heard of that one. Um, <laughs> and just working on it. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's all right. So, um, so Corey's able to really connect with, with a customer as well. So Corey and I sat down, and, I, and we, we hammered out a deal where he, I, I gave uh, Corey, now one's part of the business. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Well, so here we are. Yes. So, yeah. So, I, again, I want to get into this, again, this whole back issue side of it for, for a couple of reasons. 
you know, in alternate realities, we always found our back issues didn't tend to move all that well. Uh, and again, in fairness, for the most part, we're talking about the overstock books that then became back issues, not so much older books like Silver Age or even earlier. And those tended to, you know, get a little bit more interest from customers. But generally speaking, our back issue bins, not a ton of movement there. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we're in an age now where comics are available digitally, not just the new ones, but a lot of older ones as well. Sure. A ton of material is getting collected into hardcovers and trade paperbacks, even more so than, than ever before. Sure. Uh, and of course, the internet is there. So if you do want to hunt down a back issue, there's so many different avenues to, to do that. Sure. And from the stores that I visited, I mean, stores still have back issues, but I would say, and I think it's fair to say, yours is more dedicated to it than any of the other stores that I've encountered so far on my travels. Mm-hmm. So I was just curious. I mean, I guess the the big question of it all is like, why back issues, and and how have you seen the market change on your end? Okay. Um, the first thing I will say about back issues is, you have to really absolutely love buying and selling back issues, and you have to really think about profit margin and turnover, and you, you want to turn your inventory and. I'm always walking a line between I need to be able to restock, so I need to be competitively buying, but I also need to be competitively priced, right? They, As you said, they have plenty of options. Uh, there's a million places online. There's more comic shows than ever. They all, they could also just give up on packages and just read them on their iPad if, if they choose, which they're not doing, apparently, to as big a degree as I expected. So I have to figure out a way where I can constantly make this profitable Part of why we've we've done okay with it and we focus on it is I I love doing it. And I gave you my history a little bit. I was 14 years old and I would show up at someone's house at 9 o'clock at night and they'd take me into their shed and back, which sounds a little ominous. <laughs> but And I would be pouring through collections and I loved it because it was... See, to me, if if you own a comic shop right now and if your business model... Now, everyone has their own business model and there's many ways to skin a cat. Um, and there's not only one way to do it. I know uh, many, many comic store owners and dealers. I'm friends with a lot of them, and we all do it differently. But one thing I will say, um, if you own a comic book store and you are only carrying the new product you get from Diamond Comics, unless you are um, running like a lean internet operation out of a warehouse or unless you have massive volume like in New York City, you are not going to make a living doing that. You're going to make a you're going to scrape by because it's it, it's a commodity and you don't have any kind of competitive edge. Someone could always give an extra discount more. And there's so much risk with new books. These books are $4.99 cover price. Our cost is little under high. It's really half off once you factor shipping. It's half off. And you're buying too much. And now, you know, more, it's, it's a lot easier now because Diamond has the FOC, the uh, order cutoff program. And I, I use that religiously and you got to adjust your orders. But... As far as to draw someone to my store, if I'm only carrying the new stuff from Diamond, first of all, it's easy for someone to, to compete with me. And also, it's, it's, it's not so interesting, okay? Someone comes in, all right, well, he's got the new stuff, and, he, and he's got that new DC Direct toy, and he has the new set of magic. But I could get that anywhere, right? Back issues are something where, if it's, only if it's done right, people will come from far away to to dig through your back issues because their local store doesn't want to be bothered. And and by the way, I don't blame most of these stores for not doing back issues much. It's a colossal amount of work. The labor is intense. And 
it's you got to love it. But I will say that it gives us a really uh, one of our competitive edges, in my opinion, at least, is that we really focus on it, and I aggressively get new material. Yeah, that messaging is is consistent, and it's all over everything. Zap Comics, from the you know the website to the Facebook page to I'm looking at a sign that's sticking out of the back issue bins, and it says "We buy comics." Yeah. And again, I know on your website, you know, we buy. We're always buying. We buy all collections from 1930s to the present. Uh, Zap shows up and spends. I mean, I, you mm-hmm. know, again, that messaging is is really there. Mm-hmm. And as far as the labor, I do want to get into that in, in just a little bit. But I, I can I know how much is involved. I mean, you're you know you're dealing with these buyers. You're finding the collections. You're you're examining them. You're I mean the pro- the process of going through and grading and pricing and and putting them out and all of that. I mean, I know it's it's not a small undertaking. Not at all. And now, just to be clear for for listeners, you know, when we talk about your back issue selection. Yes, there are the traditional back issue bins with, I'm sure, books from you know more recent years. But we're really talking about older books, like right? I mean, really key books. I mean, yeah. would you mind? Because I'm looking and you have your, you know, uh, on the wall there, all the bagged and boarded and, and priced books. I mean, some of the, just for listeners, what are some of the key books that are on the wall right now? Well, um, I, I'd have to actually turn around because our, our more expensive stuff, which we keep behind the counter, uh, you know, at, at any given time we try to have those solid keys, say Amazing Spider-Man 129, and those early Marvel Silver Age. Golden Age is very difficult. Golden Age has gotten so hot the past couple of years. I, I get it in, and it really moves out. But we're always carrying, we want to be as deep as possible on Silver Age, and as many of those first appearance, everyone's hot for like, whether it's Hero for Hire number one, or Avengers number four with Captain America. Uh, right, right now we have an Avengers one on the wall behind me. I also have another selection, which we don't keep in the store for several reasons, where we have some other higher-end stuff, some of the big key books, which we will bring out for clients, you know, by appointment. So we, we don't keep those in the store. Um, so I do have, you know, like Fantastic Four 1, Daredevil 1, some timely Captain Americas. Um, so anyway, but here in the store, if you walk into my store, now again, it, 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 there's an ebb and flow to it. Sometimes I'm really flush with collections and sometimes I'm not. But if you walk in... We always want you to look at our wall behind the counter and see uh, whether it's a, a, a New Mutants 98 with Deadpool, hopefully some nice Silver Age, maybe like a Hulk number two, and then all these hot uh, Bronze Age keys, which are like Hulk 181, which never last. I actually have one in the back right now, but, um, you know, we want you to see those key issues because that that is the hottest part of the market now. I'm kind of curious about movie-inspired fluctuations, right? So like a Hulk 181, that's probably a book that's always going to be big for you. Yep. But then I'm sure there are other things that see some increased interest when a movie is announced or something like that, but then it might pass. I mean, how do you account for that? Well, what we... See, I'm not quite as... Um, I'm probably not quite as fast on the trigger as some of these guys, you know, are able to... I, either through guesswork or they just have some inside knowledge of who of what villains let's say the next villain in the avengers it will be i don't know kang or something whatever it is and they're going to make sure to buy up those avengers eights with kang that's his first right kang, yeah um what we are what is happening like crazy where you have these breakout books where it, it hits the internet that the next villain on netflix or on a movie is x villain and a book that normally was in my bin for $10 is instantly a $100 book. And we really do our best to stay on top of that. We're not perfect and we miss stuff. But And then when I'm buying a collection now, it, it has it has changed the whole equation buying collections. Because in the old days, um, 
you know, you would say buy a run of, um, I don't know, Avengers. And there was really no key books, you know, aside you'd have number 57 with Vision, and then you have the Neil Adams issues in the nine, you know, number 93 and number 100. And then everything else was just kind of, you know, bin, you know, for the bins. And now there's all these little, first, like Squadron Sinister and Yellow Jacket, and you have all these first appearances. What it's done, it's made the, the market very, uh, well, it's more exciting now because you've all these, wow, is this, the, the, you have all these guys hunting down first appearances, and wow, is this guy going to be in the next movie? And you have a lot of volatility. A good example is the Inhumans, you know, Fantastic Four 45. And I don't know if the Inhumans, I think the Inhumans is happening, right? The movie, is it a TV series? It's going to be a TV series, yeah. Okay. I think they're showing the first episode or two in theaters, but then it's going to be a television series. Okay, gotcha, yeah, because I did see something about that. Um, but, but that book, when it skyrocketed, and that Fantastic Four 45, which I personally love, that's one of my favorite books growing up. I'm a big Kirby guy. But it, that, that was a 10 or $12 comic, my bins. It didn't sell. And almost overnight, it was a $300 comic book. So that's, that keeps us on our toes. And, you know, one thing we never do is give any investment advice as a policy. You know, people ask me all the time, is this going to go up? And, you know, what should I buy now? And I just, I, I, it's not appropriate. I'm not a financial, I'm not giving financial advice and it's not appropriate. And I just have this, you know, icky feeling in my stomach that I'm going to tell a guy what to buy and he's going to come back in five years. You said that FF45 was going to triple and it's worth less. And then I feel like a creep. So I've never, you'll never catch any of us here giving investment advice. Won't do it. It's not appropriate. You hit on just a moment ago that, you know, perhaps digital hasn't hasn't hurt comic shops as much as it was feared to. Right. And I, I, I would assume that where it has had an impact has been more with the newer issues. I mean, is it, you think it's fair to say that that collector mentality, you know, keeps those back issues still viable for a store? Well, as far as digital, about four or five years ago with, with Comixology and, you know, and, um, you, you know, Marvel has their unlimited, I guess, right? You, you could pay a flat. A lot of, a lot of people, not even people in my store, just say friends of mine, you know, around the neighborhood said, Ben, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about comic books. You know, they're going digital and, you know, you're, you're going to have to look for a new business. I'm like, well, it might happen, you know, uh, but I'm not seeing it, you know, for, I think it might be the age of my buyer. You know, the average age of my buyer is a little older. I think they're kind of set in their ways. Um, people are definitely reading digital. It's definitely happening. And everyone has an iPad now. And it is really useful just to be able to read a whole chunk of stories and not have to store them. There is an, a lot of value to it, and I, I recognize that value. What I would say overall, it's probably a net positive because it's still ex- it's giving people, um, it's exposing a lot more people to reading comics. And I, for whatever reason, for now at least, people still want to come into the shop. And now, not everyone, of course, but our traffic like ever since dc new 52 i'd say our traffic every year has just been growing and those are the same years that correspond with the real advent of digital and the increase in digital right so there's something going on i can't predict it and you know what if next year everyone switches to digital and i'm not selling comics anymore so i'll i'll go into something else (laughs) that'll that'll be ben's signal to ride into the sunset but but at, at this point now my sales my floppies now, I do worry a lot that Marvel in particular, uh, first of all, the, the, the cover prices, in my opinion, are too high. They, they, I, I wish they would be like DC 
and and hold the line at two ninety nine. I would love them to hold the line at two ninety nine. I'm sure they they have their accountants at the back office and they're looking at the numbers and they're doing these variant covers and they're five ninety nine and you buy a thousand and you get. And I have some buyers for those, by the way. So I'm not bashing it. Some are pretty neat, but I would love it if Marvel would do a uh, a total revamp, and it would make my life easier. They they would increase readership, which has all other effects that are positive. But the the other issue I have with Marvel, let's let's say you have someone that goes to see like the Spider-Man Homecoming, and it has Tony Stark, right? He's Iron Man, right? And you know Marvel has not made it the new books very accessible so it, it it's it can be a struggle to someone who's new to comics they want to come in they just saw the movie I mean they're curious about it and it's not always that accessible and that's a big problem how has something like Peter Parker the spectacular spider-man done especially in the wake of the movie have you found new readers gravitating towards that or not as much we it's selling better than just a standard spider-man book because it's a new book but um Based on the numbers, it just it, it's a new Spider-Man number one. There were some cool variant covers. Do I think there's this a groundswell of interest? No. Interesting. Because I, I think the idea, even in the letters page of the book, they addressed the fact that they wanted to have a book like that available to people after seeing the movie. So it seemed like that was really the motivation behind it. I was just curious what you've seen in the on the ground, the boots on the ground. You know? Boots on the ground. Yeah, we're not, it definitely is selling fine. You know, my I'm, I'm happy with the sales, but. And again, I'm not, to be fair, I'm not on the sales floor every single day like I was. In the old days, I was, at, I, like, say an average day, let, let's say you happen to be in Wayne, New Jersey a month from now, and you pop in to say hi to Ben, the odds are you're not going to see me here. I'm going to probably be in the back room grading Silver Age, or I'll be at my warehouse, which is down the street. i got a very large warehouse, and I'll be there sorting through stuff. So... On the note of the warehouse, w- would you be able to give even just a ballpark number between the stores and the warehouse? I mean, how many books we're talking? Um, I have a pretty good i. I think I have about uh, uh I think I have about uh twelve hundred to fourteen hundred long boxes. So what is <laughs> so <Wow. laughs> what what is that like half a half, that's like four hundred. So and but it's always it, it's always changing because I buy. Like, for instance, last week I bought, um, it, it becomes a blur, but, you know, I bought, say, about 100 long boxes last week. No, I bought more than that even. But I, I'm also pretty active, you know, back-to-back issues. You know, you have to have yeah. back issues. One thing I've, I try to do, and again, because um, I've always been, ever since the 90s, I've always uh, been a pretty active buyer of overstock, and I bought out a lot of leftovers from comic stores or, and distributors. I bought up big warehouses of stuff. I kind of enjoy that. So that was actually a good a good lesson for me to learn about, wow, you know, having all this dead inventory, uh, it chokes you and it kills you. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine, yes, yeah, seeing what all of these stores are stuck with. I mean, what I guess what lessons do you take from that? I, I It's been really valuable. It's I've been uh, really conscious of it because... Um, when you buy um, a store's a store that's either not necessarily went out of business, but a store you know retired or folded up and he's selling out, and you look at what they have, you realize how much value is destroyed when you don't turn over that inventory and you and how hard it is just to run a comic shop and actually make a living 
because they're not they're not returnable. You're making decisions two months in advance. Now it's changing. Like I said, FOC has helped a lot. But, you know, you have guys who are maybe really passionate about the hobby. I'm sure you hear this all the time, but are not necessarily that sharp with their, their business acumen. And they're ordering two months in advance, and they're, they're, you know, and they're maybe not tracking their inventory. We're not perfect either with tracking inventory. We, we try hard, but we're not perfect. So you see how all those mistakes add up quick. Yeah. And this is something that came up, in, you know, in the premiere of the season. Uh, I spoke with uh, Mark at All Yeah Comics, and we talked about just how difficult it is navigating that order form and trying to predict what interest you're going to have in those books. And it's it's tough, even if you have your base of subscribers, they don't always tell you if they're interested in something, they don't always tell you if they want to drop something. Mm. And so it, that can be difficult to predict. But then on top of that, it's like if you do make a mistake and you overorder on something and then you're left with it, it's like what do you do with it at that point? Again, for people who listen to the first season of the show, you know that was somewhat of a frustration that, that we all felt because Steve would hold on to things. Steve was very much of the opinion that he paid a certain amount for these books and he was opposed to blowing them out. He felt that they still had value. I'm, I'm laughing in coffee at the same time. <laughs> I'm trying to keep, as, as you're smiling, I'm really trying to keep a straight face. But, you know, so Steve was very much of that mindset. And again, it was his store and he was the one who was paying for these things. So that's fine. But the result was all of this overstock piling up and our back issues overflowing and boxes piled in the aisles and you know of all of these things and i mean as you well know with with a lot of these books there is that shelf life and once they once that period of time passes and it's not a long period of time for a lot of books it's unlikely that you're going to be able to sell them or if you if someone comes in looking for it yeah maybe one person might come in but when you're talking 10 15 20 or more excess copies of something you're really just stuck with it. So, I mean, what, like, how do you handle, like, when you, if you overorder on something, what is your approach? Okay. Now, first, let me say this. Um, no one cares what I paid for that comic book. Doesn't matter I paid a dollar eighty. Doesn't matter I paid two twenty-five. Six months later, if that, for whatever reason, is worth nothing, it's worth $10, worth a dollar, it doesn't matter what I paid. And that's something which I actually see that philosophy, what you're saying about Steve, and, and I know Steve, and I remember talking to him when I did buy his some of his overstock. I know that um, they have almost a psychological, uh, like a mental block. They, it, they, can't, they, they can't bear to mark it down or just accept that, you know, you made a mistake. And I make mistakes just about every day because we're we're in an imperfect business and we're not we're not selling um, you know we're not taking orders you know we're 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 not taking orders from people and just only ordering what they want we are buying things almost you know within reason using judgment and trying to track inventory so whether it's toys or comics it doesn't matter what what I paid and you have to say well what is it worth right now and the same whether it's um, you know a share of stock or real estate it doesn't matter what you paid what is it worth now? What What is going to help you, the customer? You want to keep the customers happy, and you want to keep yourself in business and make a fair profit, right? So we have extra stock. Now, there was a shop when I was in college uh, called Marple Comics, and he his philosophy was I never lost money with empty shelves, meaning he ordered 
precisely for reservists. And he would literally buy sometimes two copies for the shelf, and his shelves were always empty. Now, you can't do that. You're never going to grow your business. That makes for a really bad store, right? So you have to have, you have to take a shot on things, and you have to, within reason, have product on the shelf to, to sell to people who are going to come in. Otherwise, they're not going to shop with you. So to do that, you're going to have leftovers, right? So let's say at the end of a cycle, you know, we, we, you know, comics have a four week cycle, but now with everything's changing now because sometimes they're, they're twice a month, right? Yeah. The shipping schedules, right. Are, are can be very different now. Yeah. They're very different. And we also keep, uh, what we did, which is different now and I keep evolving and two years from now I'll change again. But what we try to do is keep the current, um, on most, not all, but a lot of titles, say four to five months of books on the shelf at cover price. We'll keep one or two behind them at cover price. Not all titles. Certain titles warrant going right in the bin. Uh, we don't mark them over cover price. Usually we're at cover, even less than cover, uh, because the cover prices are so high. So you, you take a $4 Avengers. In the old days, say Avengers was a dollar, and you mark it up to $1.50 because, well, I paid for a bag and board. I got to get my fifty. No, it doesn't matter. So now um, we'll often be at cover price, even with a bag and board, or even less, because that's what it's worth. That's what the market dictates. And... We also, when I pull that overstock, I don't go into all my different methods. I have a few strategies, which I don't, you know, for competitive reasons, I don't talk about. Yeah, but, no, that's fine. But I'm very, very aggressive about getting rid of stuff. I guess that, yeah. I mean, as far as what the specific strategies are, if you want to keep that close to the vest, that's fine. Some I guess, it, yeah. yeah, I mean, my, <laughs> my main question is, do you just hold on to it? <laughs> no, absolutely not. I think that one thing I've learned, and I learned that pretty early on, and, and having been a really active buyer of, you know, uh, store inventories, you know, I've traveled all over the Northeast buying stores that had gone out of business or just retired. I saw firsthand how much value is just stuck there. And I, I've always been, even with my dealings with the vintage stuff, I tend not to want to be one of those guys who runs a museum and wants to maximize every dollar. And now, you know, and to my detriment sometimes, I'm so fixated on just keeping my stock fresh and turning it over, I probably leave too much money on the table. Like, I'm, I'm kind of known, I would say, I don't know if other people, yeah, other people would probably agree, I'm known to be a little under market value. So if, if most of the guys are charging $1,000, I'm at 900 and, you know, because I want to turn stuff over. I also don't enjoy haggling. I don't like the whole used car scenario. This is not a, 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 a bazaar in Lebanon where we're haggling over rugs. I, and I also having stores, I can't have my guys having to be responsible to always be, all right, well, this guy gets 10% off. This guy's going to haggle, so we're giving him 20% off. I'll mark him up. I, I got to keep my prices flat. This is the price. I think it's fair. So kind of like head that off at the pass. Just keep the prices lower so that you don't have to get into that back and forth. Exactly. Just to try and avoid a lot of it. Now, you know, having said that in the back of your business, there's always this little bit element of it. But we really don't haggle much because I try and just start off very fair as it is. And I, I think most of my customers agree with that I say you know yeah the, I, I'm fascinated hearing you talk about this because this again was something that came up all the time and for the you know we love Steve and everything but uh, you know the overstock it, it it was a killer I really I really do think that it was because you had you know all of this overstock you were not by you know by holding on to it you weren't recouping any of the money that you laid out for it you were taking up valuable real estate in the store and it was all in the hopes that this hypothetical group of... Because that's the thing. Even if one person came in, that still would not make enough of a difference. You would have needed 
a whole flood of people coming in looking for that that one book and it just it didn't happen and you know there were times where we got steve to to you know part with some things and as you just said you know there was a period where you bought you know a bunch of overstock from him we kind of spearheaded a sale at one point it was the 52 sale this is uh when dc was doing the weekly 52 series and the sale that we came up with was you take a short box and you fill it up with as many back issues from the bins as you can fit in it and 52 bucks great and it was great, great. that yeah. actually made a difference like that right. we took a big dent out of our back issue bins it was i loved it i think one one thing um one thing that is always in the back of my mind and so you know there's no just one perfect answer and something in the back of my mind is um at the end of a cycle when, you know, the new comic is not new anymore, you know, it's ran its course, I want to have it available if people want, if people miss that number, I want to have it available. And that, that to me is part of the job of a comic book store. But at the same time, I don't want to have like 10 of those. Like, it, you know, it's everything is title by title basis. But at the same time also, you don't want to, you want to create some kind of, of urgency in the store. Meaning, if you have just piles of stale stuff everywhere, and your store is stale, and that's something I'm pretty sensitive about. And it happens to me too. And sometimes I'll walk around the store. And I'm like, man, you know, those Star Wars toys are really gathering dust. And you know, I, I'm marking them all down, and I, or let's move them around. So you you want to you don't want to have that stale stuff around. But at the same time, let's say you have your steady clientele every Wednesday, you know, and other days too. They come in for their new books, and they're giving you their hard-earned money, and they're enjoying, you know, getting their new you know, their weekly fix. You also don't want to create a scenario where you're blowing everything out real cheap because then it, it diminishes the value and you have a guy spending $3 on a comic and then the next week, next month he sees it in a dollar bin. That actually hurts. So we, we really avoid that too. We don't want to, and which is also why we want to be careful on our ordering because our we don't want to have all that extra stuff that we have to blow out. So we want to be careful on our ordering. But at the same time, you have to face facts, and they're not worth five dollars. They're worth, you know, a dollar. So I'm always walking a line where we want to feel people. We want the customer to be getting a value and feel good about coming here, and they're they're spending their hard-earned money with us, and we're very thankful for that. And we're very lucky to have that. And I I love our customers. Like I said, I I love 99% of my customers, and the the other one <laughs> one one percent I really love, and they're my favorites. Okay, but. Uh, so getting rid of stuff though, which is actually a very, this is something which every comic store talks about. It destroys their, their business because they're not aggressive enough and they're not careful enough about getting rid of it. And so I found a lot of different channels to get rid of stuff. A lot I don't talk about. They're my own little, little secret sauce. But if a store is not very actively managing their inventory and clearing out stuff, they're going to have problems. I guess the solution that we always wanted Steve to pursue was to sell stuff to you. <laughs> it was always the thing. It's like, sell to Ben. You know, I don't know the last time you spoke to him or if you're aware of what, what he's done, but he held on to everything and he currently has everything housed in two Westie storage units. So, and they look just like alternate realities. So if, you ever, if you're ever nostalgic and you're like, oh, I want to see the store again, I'm sure Steve would be happy to show you around. It looks just like AR. He even has all the same signs up that say "Do not touch" and "Store hours" and everything. No, wait a minute. Are they in self storage units? <laughs> like one of the, are, where are they? they? It's a Westie. They're two Westie storage units. And when I say units, I mean I mean rooms. I mean they are huge. Oh, I'm trying to picture this now. So, what what is the game plan there? I I don't get it. <laughs> so yeah, we're we're all trying to figure that out. He has been. 
the the plan has been to sell on eBay, and uh, he has been doing that to to an extent. Mm-hmm. But you know, we're two years now since AR closed, and those two units are still full. Steve has actually kind of gone in the other direction. You know, as you might be aware, he sold his personal collection through Heritage uh, about ten years ago. Mm-hmm. His entire collection. But since the store closed, he's actually gotten back into buying collections. So mm. I think he's actually, at this point, I, I can't say 100% for sure. I think he might have bought more on eBay than he has sold <laughs> at this point. Okay. So that's kind of where he is right now. So honestly, we we still would hope that he would call you up one day and say, hey, I have, these, I have all of these back issues. Do you want to come and take a look? I don't know that that'll happen, but I, that's my hope. Well, that's uh, that's that's pretty interesting. I will say he would probably be better. I don't know what what kind of rent he's paying on the you know for that space, and and if it's not much rent, it's not a big deal. But he would probably be better off. And again, I'm not saying this because I want to buy it. Because honestly, I'm not. I buy bulk, but I'm really not as aggressively buying bulk anymore. I'm much more fixated on vintage anyway. So I'm not saying because I really want it. But he'd probably be better off just clearing it out and starting fresh i think i think he would feel mentally he would feel better and just start from zero and then buy collections again and have a whole system see what i do when i buy a lot of collections here and again without giving away all all my strategies but we really have a home for every you know when you you know they say uh, when a butcher butchers a cow there's from from the hooves to everything there's there's a home for everything, right? You use every scrap of it. So I, I have different channels given of every scrap from the, you know, from the Fantastic Four number one down to the ratty copy of, you know, Archer and Armstrong. I have ways to get rid of everything. So I want to sell through everything. Now, there's always stuff that we, I call it, I squirrel it away. That's my little lingo. Like there's certain books, again, this is just my one of my strategies. There's certain books I think are undervalued now or I just don't want to dump and I, I squirrel them away and I have boxes and boxes and they actually say the word squirrel on them and I put them away because I think they're undervalued. And and then sometimes I open those boxes and there's a first appearance of Jessica Jones in there and I'm all happy and I do a dance and the rest of the time I close the lid again and I, I sob softly. No, I'm only kidding. But the bottom line is it feels really good to get a collection and be able to sell through it clean or almost clean. It's good for business. It keeps everything fresh. You, you got to just tear off the band and move on. I do that all the time. Yeah. No, I think it really can be a block if, if you do have that mentality. Now, again, going back to the buying of collections, because I know you do buy aggressively. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, on an annual basis, I mean, how many collections are we are we talking here? Well, you know, at times I'll have a drought, like I, I call it a drought where I'm like, wow, I haven't gotten anything really good in two months. And, you know, and when I say really good, something at least worth like, you know, say at least 20,000 or more, you know, that to me is good. So, wow, I'm getting all these little collections and I start getting antsy and what am I doing wrong? And But uh, we actually buy quite a bit. I mean, I, I'll give you just a quick, you, you know what I, I wanted to do? And again, it just... It's probably laziness, or or I say to myself, what am I going to do with this information? I started making a diary of my collection buying. It was called a, a diary of a madman, and I I started to chronicle from like we get some walk-in collections, little stuff here and there, and I travel a lot. I'm I'm a bit of like an animal about being a, you know going after stuff, but after like a week, I just lost interest. I'm like, but what am I going to do? It, it looks it's fun to read, but what am I going to do with this information? But I realized podcast. I, well, 
we could talk about that after. I think that'd yeah. be cool. But anyway. It would be pretty interesting. Um, how many collections? I buy a lot. I buy, I don't say, I probably wouldn't say a real number, but I will say that very often in a given day, and when I'm saying a collection, sometimes a collection is just like a short box of books. I buy for 50 bucks, you know what I'm saying? Okay, but, right. But sometimes in a day, we'll buy four or five collections in a day. And then sometimes, I'll give you an example. Like last week, I bought a big collection, uh, about 75 long boxes from a longtime customer, you know, he, and it had some key stuff. We, we, we already, you know, put a lot out for sale. He had Daredevil 1 and FF1, all this fun stuff like that. And then I bought, within the same week, one, two, three, four, I think I bought six or seven other collections, but smaller ones, you know, $1,000 here, $200 there. So the only way I'm able to do that, though, is um, number one, I'm not running a museum. I don't hold out for the very top best price. I'm, I want to give everyone a fair price, but I have to be competitive. But I, I, I buy a lot of books. Now, I can't give a whole enough. I know what I spend every year in collections, like what I spent last year, and I, I, I can't say it for... Yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> fine, but I buy probably, let's say... On average, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd love to know, but I, I of course I, you would. I completely re- respect that. No, of course, yeah. I just wouldn't say it, but we. I don't think I. I've ever had a week go by where I didn't buy at least a couple collections, and part of that is most people. I've been doing this a long time. You know, we went over that, and people know that I can't guarantee I'm going to pay the highest. Some sometimes someone will pay higher. He needs this stuff more. He's lower. Sometimes sometimes another dealer just needs that inventory more. Like. Um, so my someone will bring me a r- runs of like 1990 stuff or say uh, 2000 stuff. I got so much of it right now. I don't need it. But let's say you're a newer store and you need to bulk up your bins. Right. And you'll pay more than me. You'll pay $75 a long box. I'll only pay $40 a long box. I was curious about something like that. So like let's say you do get a, you know, a collection presented to you like that. Would you buy it like for, for, for the right price? Or are there things that you just flat out will say like I have no interest in this? Okay. Um occasionally we'll just tell someone we, we, we won't give you any offer on it because the offer will be so low. I don't want to insult them. It gotcha. feels like I can only give you $20 for your comics. I'd rather just say I don't want them because it just feels, it just doesn't feel right. But I have enough different channels. I have enough network of people to move stuff to in bulk. I can buy everything and, and I have a buyer for it. So I can, anything someone brings in here, I have a buyer for it. But like I said, occasionally... Um, either it's so like I'll give you an example let's say someone has 90s comics but they're like I don't know moldy I'm not even going to offer them $10 because I have this flea market guy and I'll sell them for 25 bucks I don't even want to be bothered and also it's almost insulting and I don't want to insult I don't want someone to feel insulted I, I do my I really do my best to have people leave here maybe not dancing for joy but actually feeling okay that they were treated fairly you know, I, I read a lot of reviews of Zap in advance of today, oh. and that was definitely a recurring theme was just how fairly and professionally you, you deal with people in those mm-hmm. negotiations. Um, I have to say, Steve, to his credit, uh, never, you know, r- ripped anybody off or was looking to, you know, offer less and or anything like that. I think his, the prices he offered were, were always fair, uh, and he was never looking to get one over on somebody. However... He did, and I'm sure you must have heard this from him at some point or in the podcast. He did take great delight in, as he calls it, shattering dreams. So people would come in with their collections thinking 
that they were worth a lot. And he genuinely did take great delight in disabusing them of that notion and explaining why what they had was worth nothing. Well, I don't know why... I guess Steve has a sadistic streak, I guess, or something. Um, Maybe just a little bit, but he's a sweetheart. He uh, is. Deep down. <laughs> Listen, Steve is such a character. I, I like him a lot. I, I just saw him recently. I think he was at... At the maybe East Coast, the Secaucus Comic Show. Maybe I saw him recently. And, oh yeah, I think we, he was there. Yeah, and I said, "Hey, buddy," and I and believe me, Steve's seems very likable. I I have to do that all the time, Shattered Dreams, because people will look up stuff on these co- online comic book price guides, and well, you know, these are all worth four dollars each. You know, and they, these are '90s comics that I I buy in bulk for twelve cents or something, or fifteen cents, whatever it is, ten cents sometimes. And I have to explain to them, well, no, you know, that's just a price guide. They're not really worth that. And I have a lot of them. And 90s comics were, you know, you know, I don't have to repeat the whole thing. So we have to enlighten people a lot. We, I, want, I do it in as gentle and just, you know, a truthful way as possible. And just tell them the truth and explain why I can only offer them, you know, $40 for a whole long box or $35 a long box. Because I can't sell these Valiants and you do have... And I generally, I do my best to pick out their valuable ones. Like, let's say someone has 90s books. They're going to have an amazing 361 with Carnage. And I pull that one out. I show them this one. It, it just happened yesterday. A lady brought in a box of late 80s, early 90s comics. It was one of those situations. I didn't make an offer even because I knew it was going to be disappointing. But I pulled out the Carnage one. It wasn't in high grade. I think, you know, I think I gave her 25 bucks for it or something, 20 or 20. It wasn't perfect men. But so I gave her 20, 25 bucks. But I showed that to her. So see, this one's a first appearance. He's in a movie coming up, Venom, you know. So the best thing, what I find wins people over, I try to at least, but again, there's some people you'll never make happy and they'll think you're a used car dealer. But and generally, people will believe me. I say, listen, here's a good one. Here's New Mutants 87. That's cable. I'll pay you 150 for this. This New Mutants, you know, number 20, I don't know, number 31, no one wants this. I have a ton of them. I'm, I can only give you a dime. You may just want to, I, I, say, I, I tell people not to give them away. Maybe just give them away. You, instead of give, selling them to me for 30 bucks, this box, give it away to someone. Yeah, you could spark their interest in the hobby. Yeah, there you go. So how are you finding these collections? I know a lot come to you. And again, on your website, there's a very handy form for people to you know, enter their information and contact you. But are you actually out there actively soliciting these collections as well? Is this through this network that you've cultivated? Or, I mean, how are you well, finding these collections? some of it... Um, I would say most of my collections are coming my way just because I've been around such a long time. Yeah, people know you at this point. Yeah, some of it is that. And I, I'm really careful about telling everyone I possibly know that I'm buying collections. Let me know if you know anyone. And I'm also really careful when I do buy a collection. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm doing this as a business. I know how much work, uh, work goes involved in this. I know which things turn over, which don't. So I have a pretty good formula about what I can pay, and I'm I'm very competitive. I win collections. It's it's very rare I don't win a collection. Very rare. It, but occasionally it happens. Someone wants it more than I do. Do you find yourself bumping up against other like the same dealers from time to time? Um, you know what? Do you they, have any rivals? <laughs> you know what's funny? They don't know. The seller is is usually pretty leery about telling me who else looked, but sometimes I'll I'll find out afterwards and. Um, People are pretty secretive, but I kind of know who's out there. And there are certain dealers are will pay more for certain things than I will for various reasons. But in general, if it's a collection that I want, I know 
really what I can pay you, make a fair profit and turn it over. So I'm, 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 I'm competitive. And I don't like to play games with people. A lot of dealers, not a lot, but it happens a lot where they'll kind of play little games with people. I, I just don't feel comfortable with that. When I say playing games with people, little sales tricks and pressuring them, or they'll do a consignment thing and I'll pay you later and all that nonsense. And, and that stuff almost always ends badly. I like to make a deal. You get paid. You get all your money that day. We shake hands. I got your comics. You got your money. I bid higher than the other people, and we're all done. I don't like playing games. I mean, it's it's fortunate, but also a testament to everything that you've built here that you're in a position where you're able to do that. Because actually, in in advance of today, I you know I was talking to Steve. I was saying I'm going to Zap, and you know any anything you you recommend, I bring up. And he described you as being in a class by yourself, by virtue of the fact that you. That you have, I mean, a lot of stores don't have the capital to be able to to buy the way you do. Uh, you know, again, I mentioned All Yeah Comics, a relatively young store uh, in in Westchester. They have other locations in Skokie and um, and Muncie, Indiana, as well. So they have other locations in other parts of the country. Still a very young enterprise generally, and this location in Westchester specifically, only a couple years old. And they've been taking in more collections now, but uh, for the most part, they're offering store credit. Because again, it's and I've, I'm seeing that with a lot of you know newer stores too. A lot of them are undercapitalized. Honestly, even stores that have been around for a long time still might not be in the position to be able to do this. So, according to Steve Odo, you know, it really a, a class by yourself that you are able to do this. Well, one thing about most comic book stores and even some of the bigger guys, the quote unquote big guys, it's just it's just a part of the uh, uh, biz. It's part of the, the industry in general. They're undercapitalized. It's for a lot of reasons. First of all, they're, they're, they're in a retail business. Whether you're selling uh, comic books or almost any other retail business, it's a capital-intensive, grinding business with overhead and inventory issues. And further, uh, you know, as we know in our business, it attracts a certain type of a, an entrepreneur who may be more of a fan than a really, than a, a professional. So... In general, most comic stores are just always broke, and it's just a. And I know, and and these guys are my friends, and I know how it feels. I I've had very, I've I've seen cycles in the business, and I've been, I've had hard conversations with my wife at various times of business. So I felt that pain. I know that pain. So I'm very careful. And right now, because the market is so strong, and you know, the past six or seven years have just been just. On a, I, I call it a rocket ship. I, I've been blessed that uh, we're really now financially strong. But I will say, I've been doing this a long time. I've been very tight, really stressed out. And um, that's why now even um, I'm always really conscious of wanting to turn stuff over and not sit on too much because I know that pain of yeah being, being in trouble. No, you know, there's this sentiment that's, been expressed both on and off mic so i won't say you know who said what but this idea and again i've heard this from a number of retailers you know i'm not a business person you know i'm not in this to make money you know you're not going to get rich owning a comic book shop you know i know of at least some retailers who, who don't draw salary from their store or at least not at the moment but they hope to in the future so good luck oh <laughs> yeah <laughs> Go ahead. no but so it's always encouraging to me to talk to someone like you and then some of the other stores that i've talked to as well where you know you see that it, it can be viable not without its challenges but that it is doable 
Um, it's absolutely, it's entirely possible. I'm, I'm doing it. I've, my, my wife, when we had our first son in 98 and my wife and I decided she was going to stay at home and, you know, and take care of our kids and I was going to work and I've been able to do it. You know, it's been almost 20 years now and I'm, I'm able to do it. And I, I have all the health insurance and the high property taxes and everything else. I'm able to do it. It's possible. I will say is based on what I observe of most other shops, and these are all nice guys. I, I like these guys, actually, and I, I actually get along with just about every other store, and there's only a couple that I just, you know, I ignore, but most of these guys are not going to make it, or they're just, they have a spouse who works, which is very common. You see that. Yes. Yeah, I've uh, come across that as well. <laughs> hello. Uh, hello, Stephanie. Uh, hey, I have a day job. <laughs> I long for the day where I, where this is my day job, but for now... Be, that would be very cool. Yeah. So a lot of these guys, uh, they have a spouse who works. And, but I think it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. They're almost telling themselves, well, I'm just doing this for fun or I don't, I'm not doing this to make money. I don't know why that would be a goal to have a business not to make money and pay your, it's not a crime to, to uh, be paid for your work. And it's also kind of fun because then you have extra money to reinvest and right. grow it and buy fun stuff and I don't see why that's almost a badge of honor to treat it. And I, I've known store owners like that. I mean, the, the, at least the ones I'm referring to and who, again, will remain nameless. I mean, it, it certainly wasn't said as a badge of honor. I mean, I think the goal is to get to that point where they okay. are drawing a salary and in that better position, but it's just they're not there yet. Returning to the like the nuts and bolts of the, of the actual buying, do you handle all of that personally or do yeah. you delegate? That's all you? Well, I do probably 95% of the buying. Corey has... Corey's a really fast learner. So Corey has kind of a short, I say a short leash and it's not in a being derogatory. Corey can do buying up to a certain level. He, he doesn't have my same knowledge of vintage and grading as I do. Um, yeah, you are a consultant, right? With Overstreet Price Guide? Yeah, I'm, I, I'm one of their advisors, which when I was a kid, that was like a super huge honor. Now, basically it's if you just write them a letter and, and have a friend give you a reference, you could be an advisor. So it's, it's not as, um, when I was younger, I thought, wow, that'd be cool. Now I'm like, yeah, whatever. But I definitely, one thing about me, I've, I keep on uh, honing my craft, meaning learning more and more about it, whether it's restoration and grading. And I'm just, I get better and better. And I'm not the best. There, there's so many guys that are better than me. But as far as the buying, though, it's actually not the best. To be honest, it's not the best um, system right now because since I do most of it, I'm, I'm starting to get stretched thin. And, but, but Corey has taken on the role of buying, doing a lot more of the buying in small collections, and he does a great job. And he always, we always kind of test each other. Hey, Ben, how much would you have paid for this? And I go through and I explain. So he's doing great. And my worker, Patrick, who actually just walked in, you might have seen him. Um, Patrick does all of our buying on, on single, Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon singles. He's in charge of the whole. I don't even touch those. And he does a great job. I kind of taught him the zap, the zap method, and he does a great job. So, but as far as buying comic collections and toy collections, I do 95 or 98% of it. Yeah, I mean, I have to say from my own experience at AR, I, I like to think I had other strengths in dealing with the customers and book recommendations and things like that, but that was never my forte, uh, you know, identifying, buying, grading. Uh, I mean, Steve did all the buying, but uh, I mean, there were other guys at the shop who were much more into older books, so they would definitely be able to identify those key books better than me and definitely uh, were stronger at the pricing and, and grading aspect mm -hmm. of it. As far as the, yeah, the grading, is that all you too? Yeah. The, the grading's all me, but I, I, again, we're, we're starting to reach a point where it, it's gonna, it's, it won't be sustainable. 
I'm gonna have to get like a little light, like like a pad one. And yeah, I'm I'm gonna have to. But I, I I've been resisting it because I'm very particular about it how can be I like tough things. yeah and you know how how you do it and you want to make sure that everything is following those same standards i get it yeah how uh, long does it gen- generally take you to grade a book i guess or an entire collection it depends on I, i'll give you a good example like i bought that collection last week it, it was 75 long boxes now what i did was i scooped off about uh five or six hundred of the better books too so i get them out for sale right away and then i still have that other 75 long boxes that i got to gradually process and I, I'll have my warehouse guys help me but when you have a book like a bigger book like a Fantastic Four one I got to count every page I got to check for restoration I got to really examine the eye appeal there's all these factors and it, 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 it can be complicated but then it, when you have these say say like the, the guy had a complete run of Walking Dead and those I might get a few you know there's a lot of little factors whether i'm going to get it cgc'd and have a guy i don't get a lot of books pressed uh, i do get books pressed i don't do it myself i don't have the patience but i have to decide well should i get this book pressed um so as far as time it varies on the book a lot like but i'll give you an example like i processed about 300 of those books i did in about um i did about a day you know because some of them i'm able to do real fast I, I know how to double check for the center folds there. And then some, like the Fantastic Four one and the Avengers one, I got to make sure I don't miss anything because we're talking, you know, it's a big book. Right. But I do, I, I really do my best to, um, when I buy a collection, immediately I want to at least turn over most of it. Uh, not most, I shouldn't say that. I want to get back what I spent on the collection. And again, it's, there's no hard and fast rule, but my goal is to immediately get all the money back like as fast as possible. And I think that's built up like a financial discipline. When we would bring in collections of older books at alternate realities, again, like I mentioned, there were other guys there who were really into the the processing, the the grading and the pricing, and they would do that, but often there would be a little bit of a a pause at that point where the books would kind of be put to the side and Mm -hmm. held. And again, I think we were always pushing for stuff to get to get out there because you know it's something new for the, for the customers to go through. And I I do think there was at least more interest in that. I, again, less so in the more recent back issues. But when we would you know bring in collections of new old books, mm-hmm. uh, you know people would be excited about that. So that was something that um, you know we w- we would have liked to see collections processed and and put out a lot faster. I think it's. Um I think it helps the business, helps the customer, and just, I, I think it's just good for everyone to get them, like what you're saying, get them out for sale right away. It creates excitement, it's fresh stuff. You know, like I said, in any store, you want to keep as fresh as possible. You don't want a stale store, right? And, oh, well, well, here, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like, last week I spent on collections about, and I guess I could say this, so I, I don't like talking about that, but, but I spent oh, 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 probably, probably about 20000 on collections last week. This week coming up, I have a few things lined up. I might spend forty or fifty thousand. That's that adds up real quick. Yeah. Now, which is also why I'm always. I never want to get in a point where I'm under pressure, where I start getting low on funds, and then that's when you you don't make good decisions. Just like everything else in life, when you're under pressure, you don't make good decisions, right? So I constantly. That's why we're always fixing on turning stuff over. So I always have that. Uh, I, I call it um, dry powder. You know what I mean? Having that money coming in. And um, and and this is all stuff I've learned from years of making mistakes and feeling that pain of being broke. I've I've had um, I don't know a single comic store owner who's been around at least twenty years or more who hasn't had that sick feeling where they can't pay their diamond bill and you know has to hold their paycheck and it, it's a bad feeling. So you know, I want to avoid that feeling, right? 
Exactly. And in terms of that turnover, like when you put out a new book or, or a box of books from a collection, whatever the case may be, is there a certain period of time after, like that it needs to move by after which you would either switch it out with something from the warehouse or lower the price or dispose of it another way? You, usually what we do, once we put out um, a collection, like for, the one, the example I gave, like a collection I bought last week and I, I got about you know three or 400 books out right away, they just go into the, the mix of the inventory. And if it's old stuff, here it moves really fast. And if it doesn't move within a few weeks, it's either something obscure, and I'm okay with that, you know, you know, we're, we're, we don't have that right buyer coming in, or it means that the maybe I was a little a little too high in it. Maybe the market turned a little bit. Like, let's say uh, I, when I bought it, Supergirl stuff was really hot, and now she's starting to cool off or vice versa. But I don't, I don't have a hard and fast rule about, well, this stuff didn't move in a month and mark it down. I usually will not mark, mark stuff down at all. It, if I think my price was, I try and have a price that's on target, and I'm going to hold it there. However, now having said that, that's on back issues. If I have stuff in the store, let's say a statue or an action figure, and when I bought it, diamonds, I paid diamond $18, and I have it at 28, and I see it sitting there for two months, I know, and then I go on Amazon, and I see they're 15 bucks on Amazon, all right, well, I'm marking this down, that's what it's worth. But as far as back issues, I don't generally mark stuff down. I try and stay fair up front, and I figure it out. You know, if it's really sitting for months, then I know I made a mistake there, you know, it's. Yeah, I would imagine, no, I want to get your take, you know, I feel like back issues, especially these higher-end vintage books, really have their own clientele. Like, that's a, its own sub-market within the larger comic shop customer base. I mean, is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, it's a market that um, a lot of stores won't even see it. Like, I'll give you an example. I went down to North Carolina last month for uh, something for my kid's school. And so I had to hit the local comic shops, and I, I hit three different stores. One of them was a fairly new store, more focused on gaming, brand new store, carried only new product. Now, let's say myself as a vintage buyer, I would go in there once, and I'd probably never go back. And he was a friendly person, nice, clean store, but I'm just, it's not going to be on my radar. The, uh, then the second store I went to was a real old-school store. The guy was into, like, Wally Wood and Al Williamson. I had this great conversation his prices were pretty aggressive, but I would keep going back because I figure, well, his prices are real. His grading's really aggressive in his prices, but this is a store that probably gets stuff, and I'll probably build up, so I'll keep going there. Then the third store I went to was probably, I would probably say, similar to mine. I do a little more with back issues. It's called Acme Comics. a great store, actually. It's called Acme Comics. <laughs> yes, uh, I will be visiting there uh, for kidding. this season of the podcast. Okay. That guy, that store was a really lovely store. The The manager there was had just so personable. And they it's pretty similar to, to a Zap. Oh, it's a lot bigger, though, because they're, I'm guessing the rents, I don't know this, I'm guessing rents in North Carolina are cheaper than Wayne, New Jersey. That's something I'm finding on my travels, places like Pack Rat or the comic book shop in Delaware, or you know, I'm sure I'll see when I go to Acme, the stores in other parts of the country, the, yeah, the value is a lot different in some of these places. And they have, a couple of stores I've been to, they have entire side stores that they use for storage and gaming, so it's amazing. I, I'm very jealous of those stores. I see those guys, and I wish I just my rent here again. I don't. I, I won't disclose what my rent is, but you can imagine from what Steve was sure. paying. I'm I'm in a similar area to Steve. I'm in the Northeast. This is pretty affluent, Wayne. 
So, and I went to that Acme Comics, really nice store, nicely laid out, nice, um, really nice manager. I forget his name now. Jermaine. Oh, is it, would it be Jermaine? Yep. Okay. Yeah, he, he was wearing a cool like a hat. Yep. Super nice guy. <laughs> he has been the, he wins the award for most mentions by other retailers on the show this season. I've had a few people now who have who have brought him up. How weird. How funny. Well, well, he, he earned it because he just has a great personality and, and he... I like to feel, I don't want to feel like a hard sell, and just in general, when I'm in a store, I want to be left alone, but I also want a friendly experience, right? I want to feel like if I need help, it's there for me. And uh, I was just really impressed with that store. Yeah, again, I really am fascinated by this, the fact that, you know, again, this is something that you have really nurtured and cultivated at a time when, when, again, I feel like a lot of stores are, are retreating from back issues, generally speaking. Um, but yeah, I suppose if you do that to too great of an extent, you are really limiting yourself and, and perhaps alienating an entire group of customers. Of course, I guess the flip of that is it's tough if you don't have the expertise, you know, to be able to identify and grade and, and all of that. It, it, that could be challenging in its own way. But I guess that's a, a line for stores to walk and figure out exactly what they want to be and what they want to carry. I think um, they offer an edge to make people come to me. And then when they come to me for the back issues, maybe they're going to buy their supplies here and maybe they're going to pick up their new books and then they're going to tell their, and then maybe I'll get a collection from a friend of theirs. So to me, it works. It it gives us a nice little niche, but I will say it's a huge amount of work. And some of these guys, they just don't have the interest or they don't have the passion for it. So they, so they probably shouldn't do it, but, but they do have to find something else besides that new product. Cause like I said, unless you're doing massive volume, you know, it's really hard to make, you know, you, you know, make a living and have health insurance and uh, cover your bills just on new new product. Oh, tough. When you're buying collections that are 75 long boxes, are you going through each book before you buy? What I'm doing is obviously the cheaper stuff, like all those moderns, those 80s and 90s books, I'm just flicking th- yeah. really quick. Then on the bigger books, I'm really taking them out. Like the, say, the Fantastic Four one, I, I open it up and I count every page. You know, I've learned, I've learned with, you know, experience, you, you, you better count every page. And so on the more valuable stuff, I'm checking them out. When I say valuable, if it's a book that's $100 or more, I'm opening it up. Books under 100 bucks, I do a quick look at the cover and I just keep on rolling and I'm, I, I kind of have a formula in my mind. I'm like, I'm pretty good um, just from all the years of doing this. And I just, I'm pretty good with numbers. I'm not, you know, the best, but I'm decent with numbers. And I can just count, I'm like calculating. I'm like, da-da-da-da-da. Okay, those are a bunch of mid-grade Silver Age FFs. Without the keys, I'll pay five bucks each on those. They're worth 10 bucks each. And I'm just running, running. I'm making little notes as I go. But I'm not actually checking every book except for the big stuff. Do you enjoy the old comic book smell? Love it. Yeah, I figured. I, I love, <laughs> I love it. The The only smell I hate is, is mothballs. Occasionally I'll look at uh, a mothball collection and I won't even buy it. It's, I can't take it. But besides that, I love it. You mentioned the, the shed earlier when, you know, one of, <laughs> one of the earlier uh, collection buying experiences. Any other like weird places that you've gone for books? About two or three years ago, when I was aggressively like just hopping in the car every day buying collections... Um, I get a call from a guy in, in Philadelphia and I always try to get people to send me as much information as they can so it's not a waste of a trip, right? 
So I have him text me some pictures and, you know, and I talked to him on the phone and he seemed like a nice guy. He seemed, you know, he seemed for legit, you know, I, I didn't get any creepy vibe from him, but um, he had a Silver Age collection and he showed me some kind of poor quality cell phone pictures. They weren't in great, I, I couldn't tell the condition, but they, it was a little blurry, but he gave me his address and it was a very bad part of Philadelphia. I don't, I don't know if you know much about Philadelphia, but there's, there's a few areas that are like a war zone it was in a bad it was a part where where the buildings were all abandoned okay it, it was bad so and and the the buyer you know requested cash only so i brought a friend of mine who's uh ex-law enforcement and he's he can carry you know he, and i said you know what do you want to and this is one of my best friends um say hey you want to you want to go for a ride with me i'll buy you lunch said, sure it's fun you know for him it's fun just to see me in action right so we, we pull up on the street, you know, and I'm looking, and I always kind of research the neighborhood. Like I go on Google Earth and I, you know, so I'm prepared. I don't want to pull up to a weird situation, especially with cash. So we pull up and every building's abandoned. This big metal door like swings open in front of this warehouse. And the guy is like beckoning us in. We're like, wow, this is weird. And we so we walk up, I said, hey, you know, I introduced myself. And it was, you know, it was the man I talked to, you know, he's a pleasant guy and, we walk in, and he slams the metal door shut, and it was, it was a weird. And um, I wasn't too worried yet because my friend is armed, right? And you know we're two, you know, pretty in, in shape guys. And and the man was older guy. I wasn't. I didn't feel too physically threatened. Um, but a weird vibe. Very weird. And it was dark. It was like pitch dark. It was one little light bulb. And then he brings us into a room, and it was a. Um, like a uh, voodoo temple like a yeah like a weird stuff like voodoo stuff okay yeah i look at my friend and you know again this is one of my best friends i've known him since i, I was 10 years old and we just have a thing we look at you know when you look at your friend you want to crack up like yeah. nervous laughter and, sure okay i look at him I'm like okay and he like kind of lifts his uh shirt a bit just so the guy would know he was armed not not in a threat anyway you know and i was very friendly you know and i'm i'm pretty good at I'm winning people over, you know, just being friendly and calm. So I start looking at the comics, though, when they're in bad condition. And and we had been discussing an estimate of four, because he kept asking me, well, what do you think it's worth? I said, well, based on the pictures, I can't see, but probably four or 5,000. And I start looking at them. They were really heavily damaged. It was going to be a lot less. And I'm explaining this to him in a very direct fashion. I'm like, well, I would give you 1,500. And, and we, we start hearing these little noises. It's pitch black around us, except for this one room, and we're hearing noises. And I'm like, um. but I wasn't too nervous yet. And then the guy gets up, and I, I could see he, he was not happy with my offer. And he gets up, and he kind of walks into the darkness, and then he puts his hands in his pockets. And my friend is like, wow, this looks weird, right? This looks like the... And we're looking at each other like, wow, is this going to be a, a problem here? Yeah. But, um he was upset with the offer, not because he felt I was ripping off. He just, his stuff was pretty water damaged. And I, I explained that to him. So he turns around and we're like on pins and needles. Is he pulling out a weapon here? Because right? it looked like that. And we're hearing noises. But he, he didn't have a weapon. Oh, okay, so we did have a happy ending to this. And he turns around and, you know, he's a little bit uh, dejected. But, you know, he believed me. And he takes his hands out of his pockets, and I think he was just getting his cell phone. That's it. He had a cell phone, and he pulls out his cell phone, and he wanted to call his son. And he calls his son to come over, and we hear the door banging outside, and the son comes in, and just a super nice kid. He's like 20 years old, 
great kid, just my friendly. We shook hands. We're joking around, but we we still laugh about that because it was such a strange. It was an abandoned warehouse in the middle of like a war zone, and this guy um, and and a voodoo. Weird, right? Yeah, super weird. Well, I'm glad it worked out. That's one that sticks in my mind. But I got a million. I haven't had too many. And wait, did he end up taking your offer and you took he the did. Yeah, okay. He, he did. I paid him. In fact, I gave him a little extra. In fact, you know, we um, we, we kind of really hit it off. Once that, like, tension where we thought he was pulling a gun on right. us and we were going to be sacrificed or something, once that <laughs> passed, we were actually, we were like buddies. We were chatting and we were, we really hit it off. And I think I offered him 1500 I went up to 1750 And I think he needed the money. I think he's, and I, that's something I do too is... Um, you know, so sometimes I'll leave some money on the table. Like, if I think someone is really having a... It's not making up a story. If someone's really having a hard time is, you know, in a bad way, I'm not going to squeeze him for me. But I don't care. I'm going to, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him some extra money because who cares? And it, 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 at that point in time, they're, they need a little help. Do you ever get a bad feeling from a potential seller as to where or how they acquired the books? Yeah, I'm. I'm actually... Because I do this so much, I have pretty good radar for if they're stolen. And it's almost never happened. I had one time a kid stole his father's comics. The kid, well, I say kid, he was 20 years old, and I think he was needed for drugs, and he stole his father's comics. And the father called me, and I gave him, I wound up taking a little loss on him, but I said, look, I'm, I'm not going to keep your comics. And, and I think by law, if you buy stolen property, you, you're, you're out of luck. You know, you got to give them up. I had a couple times where there was a scam going around. They were taking pictures off of eBay of like Action One, and they were trying to get people to meet them with cash, and it was a scam. But those are fairly transparent, and I do this so much. I have pretty good radar. I can kind of pick up pretty quickly if someone's full of baloney, you know. Any grails, any books that you haven't bought or sold that you're really dying to come across? Um, a lot. I mean, I, for as many as you've, as you've done, there's still, there's still that yeah. many out there. There's a lot of those early Golden Age books, where, which I've never, even though I buy a lot of books, even in all the years I've been doing this, I, I've never owned. There's a lot of that early DC stuff, those, those times. I've had most of the time, at least not the first one. I want to buy a Marvel Comics one. Uh, I, I actually almost bought one last year, and I just couldn't pull the trigger. But I've had almost... Every sil- every Silver Age book I've had, in, in, in multiples, for sure, everything. But once you go before Silver Age, when, when, you, when you get into the 50s and 40s, there's tons of stuff. Like when, when I bought that pre-code horror collection about a month ago, about six weeks ago, they were all 1954 era, 53. That was exciting because there were some covers I'd never seen before. That was fun. Yeah, no, I can imagine. So I still get excited. I don't get highly excited over... When I buy Silver and Bronze Age, it's fun. Totally fun. I love my job. I would never complain. However, I don't get that excitement. When I buy stuff like that pre-code horror where there's covers I've never seen, I get I get real excited. I'm very happy. And are you still curating and, and building your personal collection? What does that look like these days? Or is it really all in, in the stores? Pretty much, I don't. I don't have a huge interest in building the collection anymore. I kept all my EC comics, and even now, when when we get a collection here, occasionally there's an EC I don't have, and I'll say, Corey, this one, I think I want this one. So occasionally, I'll bring one home. But honestly, the store is my collection. Ben, it has been a pleasure speaking with you this morning. Uh, so Same during the me. time that we've been speaking, the store opened, and it's it's been busy. We've had a bunch of people in here uh, early on a Sunday morning. Thank God for that. 
You know, it's it gets depressing. It, it, you know, there's times that we're slow here, and it's kind of a drag. You know, it like kind of it's a downer. So I like action. Right? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I mean, we recorded for over two hours. Uh, this this will get edited down. But even with that two hour discussion, I mean, I, I know there's still more that we could talk about. So hopefully, we can do this again at some point. Absolutely. We will. Um, but thank you again for anybody listening who either wants to come and see your store or wants to sell you a collection or, or whatever. How, how can they get in touch with you? How can they find you? Okay. Um, if you want to get a hold of the store, uh, find us. We're just on our website, zapcomics.com, Z-A-P-P-C-O-M-I-C-S. If you're selling comics, please uh, call me directly, 973-727-6171, or email me, ben at zapcomics.com and I want to see your collection and hopefully buy it. Awesome. Well, Ben, thank you again for being part of my comic shop history. Thank you. Thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, Be sure to come back in two weeks for a new episode of my comic shop history. Next week is an all new episode of my other podcast, Flat Squirrel Tales Beyond My Comic Shop. So be sure to tune in for that and then we'll see you back here in two weeks. Don't be a flat squirrel. Next time on My Comic Shop History, our New Jersey two-parter concludes with visits to Fat Moose Comics and Dewey's Comic City. Don't miss it.